Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quape, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, I have another one of my very favorite people in the world. Um, her name is Linda Black Elk. She is an ethnobotanist and food sovereignty activist who specializes in teaching people about culturally important plants and their uses as food and medicine. Linda works to build ways of thinking that will promote and protect food sovereignty, traditional plant knowledge, and environmental quality as an extension of her work as a gardener, forager, fisher, hunter, and gatherer. Linda and her family have been spearheading grassroots efforts to provide organic, traditional, shelf-stable foods and traditional indigenous medicines to elders and others in need. Linda proudly serves as the Food Sovereignty Coordinator at the United Tribes Technical College in Bismarck, North Dakota, where she passes on ethnobotanical and food systems knowledge to her amazing students. And when she isn't teaching, Linda is out in the wild, foraging, hiking, hunting, and doing all those fun things that connect us with nature along the prairies and waters of northern um, Great Plains with her husband and three sons, who are all members of the Ocheti Shakawan, um, the seven council fires of the Lakota people. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Linda. It's so great to see you. Yay. Thank you so much for having me, Cassie. It's so great to be on here with you. Yeah. So for all the listeners, you know, Linda and I go way back. I think the first time we met was at an ethnobiology conference um, that was held in this beautiful island of, um, of uh, Vancouver Island in, in Canada. I just remember that being a really special time. Definitely. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, you know, we've been friends since then. It's been, and it's been a long time. I'm so always so happy to hang out with you and see you. And I'm going to see you really soon down on your turf there in Georgia pretty soon for the conference. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So for all the listeners out there, um, if you've been tuning into the show, you'll know by now we have a really cool conference coming up in Atlanta at Emory. And Linda is going to lead an amazing foraging tour and picnic um, on Emory's campus in the beautiful uh, Lullwater Preserve that we have with her husband, Luke. Um, and I, I know my hands are going to be pretty busy um, with conference stuff, but I'm definitely going to try and sneak away to join you for this for this beautiful plant walk because I know there's there's always so much that I can learn um, when I'm out in nature with you, and I know it'll be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, we're so excited about that, and I, you know, I mean, you know me, I always get most excited about the food, um, and so we're gonna like make a chimichurri and a gremolata and a pesto and all kinds of other fun things. So. Yeah, if you guys are free, you should sign up. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, and for those of you that are tuning in um, via YouTube, you can check out in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, you'll see a little QR code, and that code will take you directly to the meeting website where you can learn more about how to sign up for these workshops. And, you know, if you can't make it to Atlanta, we do also have a number of um, live stream options and recordings for anyone that wants to register virtually for the scientific program. So lots to check out there. But today I want to spend this time really digging into some of the cool work that you're doing, Linda. I mean, I've long admired your work in kind of social justice and food justice and, and your the way that you stand up for food sovereignty and just share that joy and knowledge with people. So maybe why don't we start there? Like, tell us a little bit about your work um, in support of food sovereignty. Yeah, you know... 
for, for a long time, um, I think people were mostly focused on food security. You know, you guys probably remember back, uh, back when everyone was talking about food security and they started sending backpacks full of food home with kids on the weekends. Um, and, and those programs were really about making sure that people have enough calories. And that's so important, like making sure that children and, and elders and other people in need have enough calories, that their tummy is full, that they're not suffering from hunger is so important. But food sovereignty really takes that a step further and says that mere calories aren't enough right? People, deserve, people have the right to access traditional, healthy food that's going to nourish them, truly nourish mm -hmm. them, not just physically with calories, but food that's going to nourish them emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Um, and that's really, I think, what, what my work focuses on. It focuses on developing and changing our relationship to food, um, you know, instead of looking at food as this, you know, thing that merely supplies calories, um, developing a relationship with plants and animals and nature in general to say, hey, um, you know, this is where these things fr come from. This is how we can sustain our Mother Earth um, uh, uh, so that we can continue to have access to these foods. And I'm a big proponent. A lot of the work I do is food as medicine. And I know, you know, it's basically the work you're doing too. Um, and we do just sort of different sides of that same coin. Um, you, uh, you know, the um, incredible work you're doing and finding medicines from a lot of really important plants, many of which are foods as well, um, mm -hmm. is uh, a lot of what I teach in my classes, um, finding, you know, ways for people to incorporate little bits of medicine into their everyday lives through what they're eating uh, and to be aware of that and to eat with intention. Um, so if someone were to say, uh, you know, be suffering from arthritis, I love to recommend things that they can incorporate into their lives every day that are anti-inflammatory to maybe help with some of the inflammation caused by the arthritis. So that's yeah. really my focus. I think that's such a great point. I mean, there's a, there's several amazing points you made there, but this idea of eating with intention and being aware of how the types of foods that we eat can either be poison or medicine. If you're eating a lot of pro-inflammatory foods and you're already suffering from something like arthritis, that's not going to help things. But like you said, you know, by increasing your intake of things that could help reduce that inflammatory load, um, food can definitely be a medicine in that context. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, I think that some people, uh, I, I, you hear food is medicine as a phrase thrown around a lot. And mm -hmm. I think people are like, well, I don't know what kind of medicine I'm getting from that bag of chips I just ate, but okay. <laughs> you know, and, and it's so important to say, no, <laughs> I don't mean it that way. <laughs> Although I think I, I mean food is medicine literally. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just a firm believer that if we are eating the things we're supposed to be eating, we're not going to be as sick. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that, about eating with intentionality and eating what we're supposed to. So from the perspective of, of indigenous foodways, what are some of the lessons that you've learned in, in, in your conversations with elders and with other friends and colleagues you developed over time? Like, 
how do we, how do we connect ourselves to our food? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's, it, it's definitely a path, right? It's not necessarily a destination um, because the fact is I have students who are at varying levels of relationship with the natural world, right? I have some students who have seriously, even in North Dakota, never taken a walk on the prairie. It's wild wow. to me, you know, yeah, yeah. Members of um, you know, the Ocheti Shakomi, uh, uh, you know, all, all kinds of students from around here who have never taken a walk on the prairie, you know, and so um, the most common um, comment I get from those students uh, at the end of our class is, you know, I used to like drive down the road and just think it was all grass. Um, you know, but now <laughs> yeah. I've developed a relationship with the prairie, a relationship with the plants that grow on the prairie. And I, I've come to realize all of the amazing gifts that are out there, the, the foods, the medicines, the building materials, even mm -hmm. things like that. And so I always encourage my students to start off really slow I and, and kind of go easy on themselves. Mm -hmm. I used to be a big, like... I, very militant, right? Like uh, eliminate this from your diet and eliminate that from your diet and stop eating refined flour, eliminate fry bread. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, those are definitely fighting words, um, especially at, you know, at the places where I live and work. And so, um, but as I've gotten older, even though I, I do want to remove those things from my diet and from my family's diets. I, um, I'm a lot more gentle about that now. <laughs> and I've come to realize that taking small steps towards food sovereignty and towards developing a relationship with um, a, a new relationship with our food, uh, a healthy relationship with our food and with plants and animals, that's really the most important thing, you know, uh, like taking taking a little bit of time, even if you're just growing one tomato plant in a container on your porch, you know, getting to know those plants and how they live and, you know, uh, how they provide and how we can provide for them. Understanding those reciprocal relationships, mm -hmm. so important about, you know, we, we just, we take and we take and we take. It's so important to learn how to give back a little bit. And so I love, I love starting from there, right? You know, let's, let's talk about reciprocal, healthy relationships. And a lot of times I'll start that conversation by talking about what a healthy human to human relationship looks like, because mm -hmm. healthy human to human relationships look a lot like healthy relationships with plants and animals and nature in general. So yeah. um, if we can like, talk about that first, students can usually find their way there. That's that's such a great analogy. And I think everyone can understand. Yeah, if you're just taking, taking, taking in a friendship, that's not really a friendship. And we're trying to build right. friendships with our with our with our plants. And I mean I've been guilty of this too. It's it's, you know, I, I tend to be a bit of a taker with my garden and which is probably why my garden fails <laughs> frequently. <laughs> so I like oh, I plant them, I love them and then I go away for a few weeks on a trip and I come back and they're like uh, it's like, why aren't you beautiful and lush? Well, I haven't given them anything. I haven't like tended to them. And I think it is, you're right. It is in that journey of tending to not only tending to cultivated plants in your garden, but also tending to the wild 
And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Like, what is it like to engage with wild plants in addition to the ones that we that we may grow in our porch or in our in our home garden? Yeah, it it is different, but it's also the same, right? I mean, it's just like, oh gosh, I'm so guilty of that too. You know, you just get busy in the summer with field work mm-hmm. or going places um, with your family and you come back and your garden's overgrown and you're like, give me food. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, um, with, when it comes to, I've actually always been the person who kills houseplants and (laughs) it's always very difficult for me to admit as a Yes, I know, I know, I know. It's like, we have to, we have to break the silence on this. I think there are many of us, you know, especially the outdoor plant people, we're not horticulturalists. So there's a, there's a line there. (laughs) That is so true. I'm not a horticulturalist. I actually, I heard you talking about that with Alexis um, and it, you know, who's, who's a friend of both of ours and Mm -hmm. an amazing person. And yeah, you know, we, we love being outside and I know how to nurture those relationships outdoors. Mm -hmm. Um, If with my indoor plants, it's, and and even with garden plants, it's a little different because they're, they're like those friends who just need a little bit more from me, you know, and I don't yeah. always give. Um, <laughs> well, right? I loved, I loved Alexis's point. It's like, you know, give me the native plants, the plants that are adapted for my area and they thrive. And in fact, like I have got, I have had some great success with like my pawpaw trees out in the front yard, you know, plants that are supposed to be growing here. They do fine because they don't need me to like pamper them so much. Right. Um, and I'm a yeah. huge proponent of indigenous landscaping as well, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've never understood why um, people, do, do you remember Nandana? There, it's a little shrub that people were planting and it was killing birds and Aww. people are still planting it. I just saw one uh, being um, you know, in a, a greenhouse uh, mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago when I was in Kansas City. And I just thought, I can't believe people are still selling that. <laughs> it's toxic to birds. But, um, you know, so I'm a big fan of like native landscaping and even Mm -hmm. of, you know, it's like you said, developing a relationship with the weeds that are growing in your garden and coming to terms with those those beings is maybe more important than the relationship you're developing with your tomatoes and cucumbers. Because the fact is the purslane and the lamb's quarters and, you know, all, all of those other things that we consider weeds are an important food and medicine at somewhere along the timeline for millions of people. And even, even now, um, purslane, oh my gosh, portulaca, oleraceae, like such Mm -hmm. an important food in so many places all over the world. And I actually was surprised. I don't know if your lab has done research on uh, portulaca, but I've been reading some really interesting information coming out of even clinical trials uh, to treat various illnesses, which I think is so cool. And, and, you know, I, I have always been a big fan of the underdog, even in sports. And so um, I think I just really love these plants that we walk all over every day, which we ignore, which we do not have a healthy relationship. In fact, we even have come up with this collective sort of insult by calling them weeds, right? Um, uh, and, and, and 
is a weed, but a successful plant. And usually they have cool chemistry. So I like, you know. <laughs> they do. Yes. And, and you know, the way that I, I always look at it um, uh, from, from my perspective is those are the plants that are always there for us, you know, which mm -hmm. can be a little annoying, just like the friend, the human friend mm -hmm. who's always there for us. You know, you're kind of like, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah, I can go to lunch with you. I, I really <laughs> want to catch up on my Netflix. But, you know, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's how a lot of these plants are. They're always there for us. And uh, I, I really appreciate that about them. So, you know, one of the first assignments, talking about relationships, right? One of the first assignments that I always do with my students in my ethnobotany class and in my food sovereignty classes is to make them go out, make them go out and harvest five dandelion leaves, just five. Oh, and they have nice. to eat them on camera. Okay. You know, I love, I don't, I love it. <laughs> that's what they have to do it on camera. They have to record it. And we play the videos and show the pictures in class. And um, you know, it's really hard. Some some of my students have a pretty easy time with it, but some of my students really have a tough time with that. They have grown up thinking that dandelions are weeds, and they've, you know, it, it, not just weeds, but like these things that are to be avoided and borderline dangerous. You know, uh, which I know it, it sounds so weird to most of us um, who are, you know, have been eating dandelions our whole lives, or or have been uh, around cultures. Like, like in Italy where dandelions are such an important part of the diet. But my students um, look at them as something that people spray, right? Something that's so yeah. pretty so It's like a phobia. It, it's like, you know, right now we have like the fungal phobia. You know, I mean, mushroom is considered, ah, it's dangerous. You know, plants don't eat them. They're dangerous. It's like, well, not all of them are. And some of them are quite delicious and actually really good for you. Um, yes. We call it phytohysteria. Oh, sure I, like, I like that word. Yeah. Phyto hysteria. Yeah. And we, I mean, oh. no, people started talking about phyto hysteria at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the word goes way, way back. I can't remember who coined it, but um, we, we were really talking about it at the beginning of the uh, pandemic because everyone was all of a sudden uh, talking about Sambucus, uh, uh, you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, their use in treating viral illnesses. But then all of a sudden, one person said, ooh, um, you know, aren't we concerned that Sambucus is going to cause a cytokine cascade and it's going to kill people? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> then it just spread and everyone was like avoiding elderberries and talking about, oh, don't use elderberries and 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 freaking out anytime uh, elderberry elixir was recommended. And I mean, of course, yeah. we've gotten past that and everyone's realized that no, yeah, <laughs> elderberry yeah, yeah. is not going to kill you. I think sales went like through the roof for elderberry during the pandemic. So people were definitely taking it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And, and yeah. And, and there was other, you know, uh, other forms of phytohysteria at that time, you know, things that people were really worried about, but, um, but elderberry was probably one of the ones that I, I think about the most. Um, yeah. And now, you know, I have a very close relationship with elderberry. So I, you know, I was never afraid of it, but yeah, I, you know, it, just like with my, with my students in the dandelions, they have to change that relationship and not be afraid of them. And, and, you know, even though I know it's not healthy, I'll have students 
take their dandelion leaves and drench them in ranch dressing to eat them. <laughs> Just whatever it takes. Yeah. Get oh, it, yeah. Get it. Whatever it takes. Wrap it in bacon, you know, wrap bacon <laughs> around it. Yeah. Whatever it takes, I tell them, as long as they are changing their relationship and they've stopped thinking of dandelions as this sort of vilified weed um, to, to changing it to, you know, to thinking about it as food. Yeah. Well, I mean, thinking about these examples brings me back to how elderberries viewed in, in certain parts of Southern Italy. And I think this is one of the big things that we're missing in a lot of our kind of modern relationships with plants. We're missing those stories. So for example, in the village where my husband's from, there are elderberries in the village. No one messes with them because there's actually like a kind of a saying. It's like, you know, good morning, godfather elderberry. I greet you. I promise you, I won't put you in the fire. It's like it's like a, a thing people actually say to the tree, which sounds a little bit weird, right? And they greet it as a family member. But, you know, there's this belief that if you burn the wood, it'll bring on a horrible headache. And so, but they use the fruits and the flowers as food, as medicine. Um, but there's kind of this veneration of the tree. And you see this in different cultures. There are stories behind different plants that have certain utility you know, to those cultures. But I feel like we've become so divorced from that today. Like I, I, there aren't many stories we're told as children today about these plants. And so we're not getting that early foundation relationships with plants. But I, I feel like you have, I'm sure you've told your children and your students stories about plants. So maybe could you share like an example of that? Like, you know, you gave one now about how to just get people to start trying it. But are there stories that, that you use to teach with? I, I think stories are the best way to teach about plants. And and now, you know, it, it's like you were saying, it does sound strange to a huge segment of the population to say that we talk to this tree and this tree is mm -hmm. called elder for a reason. And we think of this, this mm -hmm. tree or shrub as an elder. Um, and, you know, that's not an unusual thing at all for most indigenous people, right? And, and mm -hmm. land people. Um, so we always are talking to plants and we, it's actually part of the protocol, right? Uh, uh, most people don't just go out and just start picking plants. Yeah. Right? We, we have a series of protocols that we follow um, and it depends on who you are and where you're from, but you know, people make offerings, like little reciprocal gifts. People talk to plants, people pray to plants, people mm -hmm. sing to plants. And, um, you know, that's just all part of, you know, an individual's uh, or a, a, a community's journey and relationship yeah. with that plant. Um, and so, uh, you know, storytelling is my favorite thing about plants. It just it just mm -hmm. is. My belief is that if we want to develop a relationship with plants, we have to learn their story. Uh, and so. Um, you know, we, it, it, it's just like um, a human to human relationship, right? The reason we're friends is because I know your story. I know about you and, uh, and I can tell stories about you that are fun and funny. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's just one of those things that when you have a relationship and a friendship, you do that, you learn their stories, right? And so I always like to learn plant stories. I think probably like one of my favorites, just as an example that always, leaves my students completely fascinated is um, for Prunus pumila, which is also known as sand cherry. Um, mm -hmm. The Lakota name is Auyayapi. 
And uh, it's a plant that, you know, for many years, uh, when I first uh, came out to the Dakotas, uh, elders told me that I had to approach them from downwind, otherwise they would smell me coming and turn bitter. And, oh. you know, when I was young, I was just kind of like, oh, they'll smell me coming, you know, even though I knew plants were sentient, I knew I could develop relationship with plants. I, I'd been doing that my whole life. It's still when I heard that plants would smell me coming, I kind of was like, oh, they'll smell me coming. I thought it was just a saying, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like with the, with the elderberry in Italy. Yeah. Um, but... I was, I was working at the time with a chemist out of uh, North Dakota State University, and he's taken his journey now, but I just, I think about him all the time. His name uh, is Gary Stoltenberg, Dr. Gary Stoltenberg, and I was telling him about sand cherries and about what elders say about approaching them from downwind, um, and these were elders specifically from the Standing Rock Reservation, and um, he said, well, let's just let's see, let's test it. And oh, I love that. <laughs> I know, I know. I, it's so awesome. And it, it really changed my perspective on a lot of things. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't his, the thing I really loved about him is that he wasn't trying to say, um, like, oh, let's test them to see if they're right. You know, it wasn't about that. It was like, okay, obviously, uh, this knowledge, this science exists for a reason. Let's mm -hmm. see what's happening here from a Western perspective. And uh, so that was cool. And, and we got permission to, to answer that question. And what we found is that indeed the stomata open and close um, and they really will pick up on, we, we never got into it in depth enough. I was still an undergrad at the time to figure mm -hmm. out if they're picking up on pheromones or what they're picking up on. But, but when there is a predator around or someone who's going to eat these sand cherries, like a whether it's a deer or a human, um, they will start producing bitter compounds, bitter alkaloids. Amazing. Yes, it's so amazing. They really do smell you coming. It's <laughs> wild. You know, and, and we know now, like you're saying, as, as the science evolves, we know that there are certain signaling pathways that are activated when plants are damaged. I mean, we can track this now through microscopy. We can watch, you know, when a caterpillar nibbles on a leaf, how you have different calcium ion channels that open and flood, you know, across the leaf. And, and that in turn activates the production of certain bitter compounds. I think there's this confusion because we see plants as being sessile. And so we think of them as just, they're just there. They're not moving. They're just kind of, you know, what could they possibly do? They're they do passive. a lot. They're yeah. not passive. They're they not, not passive at all. Right. <laughs> like, and, and this is, I mean, and I think the clues to that are definitely embedded in stories. Like, like you shared, you know, it's like, I think native peoples have been just, so tapped into nature in ways that we who have been raised, including myself and in kind of an urban environment, not so well connected to nature, you know, it's hard, it's hard to grasp um, unless you've really grown up learning these things. Yeah. I, you know, um, and, and I've, I've noticed that too, um, that, so as I, just as another example, when I go into elementary schools and talk to really young children and I ask how many of them had a plant for breakfast? None of them raised their hand, you know? But if I go around <laughs> individually asking them what they had for breakfast, it was all cereal and toast and oatmeal. 
um, but mm -hmm. none of them think they had a plant for breakfast. So, you know, that, that goes back to the lack of relationship, right? And understanding how important plants are to our everyday lives and every moment of our lives, the very air we breathe. <laughs> yeah. And being, you know, willing to give thanks for that too, being willing to, um, you know, because we are getting so much, we're benefiting so much, uh, you know, developing those reciprocal relationships. It's pretty, pretty amazing. But yeah, I, I, I think I, I have a friend, he's Ojibwe, his name is Joe Pitawanaquit. And um, he and I have talked often about how uh, plants that have been eaten a little bit or plants mm -hmm. that have been consumed or damaged in some way, are actually uh, the ones that you want to harvest medicine from mm -hmm. because, and this is, this is very old indigenous knowledge. Um, and I'm sure it, it goes back to all land-based people all over the world, but th this intuitive knowledge that plants that are damaged have built up more medicine to sort of heal themselves or to protect themselves. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that's so interesting that because we can actually see that now, like you were saying. Yeah. Well, we can see it and we can taste it, right? Yes. You can taste it. If you think about, you know, even take, for example, tea, you know, there've been studies looking at tea grown in a forestry environment, kind of agroforestry versus monocropped tea. The chemical profiles are quite different. And that has to do with like, you know, they're, they're not being bombarded with pesticides. They actually have to defend themselves. And so they're scrappy, right? <laughs> and, they, and they have this, this different chemistry and you taste that chemistry in high quality teas. Um, yeah. Well, I want to, I want to transition a little bit along these lines of medicine. And, you know, one of the things that you've done a lot of work on is kind of this concept of cultivating medicinal landscapes. What does that mean? And are there tips you can offer to us to understand how do we cultivate medicinal landscapes in our own environments? And so that, uh, I, I, as I said earlier, I'm a big proponent of landscaping with indigenous plants and landscaping mm -hmm. uh, with medicinal plants, medicinal uh, native plants in particular. But really medicinal landscaping uh, or medicinal landscape design kind of goes beyond that, right? People talk about, um, you know, if you talk to landscape architects and stuff like that, they'll talk about, oh, we definitely only want to use native plants in our design uh, for this space. But, but what I'm talking about goes beyond that. Um, I am very interested in how spaces that have been colonized can be changed Mm -hmm. to heal us, right? To, to healing spaces. So actually uh, the United Tribes Technical College campus is a great example of this because what started off as gorgeous sacred prairie um, mm -hmm. became the site of a military training camp, uh, specifically of a, a lot of people in the military who ended up going out and fighting and arresting indigenous people back mm -hmm. in the 1800s. And then um, later, this space was actually an internment camp for um, American citizens of Japanese descent. Oh my gosh! And, yes, I, I, you know, so so many things actually, and 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 way more than that. We're very close to um, 
a, a place called Whitestone Hill where there was a, a large massacre of Dakota people. Oh. You know, so this space has really been through a lot. A lot of trauma, a lot of yes. trauma in history. You, mm -hmm. can, you can feel it. You can feel it when you're here. But we're very lucky um, that people here uh, have tried different ways of healing this landscape, whether that's through ceremony um, or planting of traditional sacred healing medicinal plants and, and foods, um, mm -hmm. not, just, not just medicinal plants, but edible ones as well, plants that ha uh, people here have a relationship with, plants that the indigenous people here have developed relationships with over thousands and thousands of years. When we bring those plants into a space, it changes everything about the space, right? The yes. whole spirit of the place. And, and it also makes people who might be aware of the traumatic history of this space, it makes them feel more comfortable. And so like, if you talk to elders who walk around here, they love seeing things like choke cherries, prunus virginiana, or prunus americana, wild plums, mm -hmm. or you know, beds of sweetgrass, or beds of artemisia sage, right? And yeah. it just makes them feel better. So you have healing from that perspective, and you have the ways that those indigenous plants heal the soil, you know, it's, it's just from every perspective. So I'm a big fan of doing those things. Nice. That's great. I really like that, that concept. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, in Georgia, the type of plants that you're going to see too. We have, we have native dogwood, which I also have in my yard, which is getting ready to bloom soon and makes a very nice cocktail um, addition. <laughs> so, we, have, we have mayapple. I mean, so many, so many interesting species I can't wait to share with you. Um, but I want to transition now into another aspect of how we connect with these wild food ingredients and cultivated food ingredients, and that's through the art of fermentation. And I know you are a master or the mistress of fermentation. You are so talented at doing this and have so many amazing recipes to share. So I guess one question I have is, what can you share that's about the art of ferment fermenting with wild plants? And do you have a favorite recipe that you might be able to share with us? Oh my gosh. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to pick one. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another a chance to give another recipe later in the show. We'll start with one. Okay. For now. <laughs> Fermentation is like my favorite chemical process. And I know that sounds super nerdy to say that I have a favorite chemical process, but I really do. It, um, I, you know, my mom is Korean and Mongolian. And so uh, she grew up with a lot of fermented vegetables like kimchi. Um, and, and you know, you can ferment anything. And we do. Like my mom is, is very much someone who will say, you can make kimchi out of anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and I, yeah, that's true. Like I, I love that. And I love all different kinds. Um, you know, we, we love to make ramp kimchi. So uh, mm. that's know, popular allium that everyone is about to go out and start collecting. We love to make kimchi out of that and ferment that. And and that way we actually have the ramps all year long. Um, nice. We don't just have them in the spring and we don't have to freeze them and make them mushy. Uh, I love kimchi because it really helps a lot of vegetables to retain crunch texture. Um, but the thing that I love the most about fermented foods is that they are medicine. They really are, you know, all of those amazing 
probiotics uh, that help us, you know, especially um, people of color who have, uh, you know, had uh, been forced into these colonized diets that have decimated our gut microbiome. Um, you know, fermented foods are a great way to start replenishing that. And they're fun and they're delicious. Um, so I'm a big, big fan of those. Even sauerkraut, you know, I I've, mm -hmm. I love sauerkraut. Um, and I think that people who don't like it have never made their own because yeah. it is totally different, right? Um, I uh, My mom is terrified because uh, these days, a lot of uh, young Koreans are putting things into their kimchi that she thinks is just sacrilege, um, like Sprite. People are putting like, what? Oh, no. Yeah, no. yeah. So they don't <laughs> pop into their uh, kimchi. So I don't do that. I'm, I'm really old school, just, you know, yeah. mostly because of my mom. But the um, microbes are supposed to make the bubbles, not <laughs> not, not carbonated additions. Of <laughs> yes, it's, it's just so much, so much better um, when you make it yourself and you let that magic happen um, mm -hmm. of, of the fermentation. Um, I've been making a lot of what Koreans call cheongs lately. Cheong. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've um, never had that. So yeah. This is basically a fermentation with sugar and we've, we don't use white refined sugar in our house. Um, so we've actually been doing uh, them with maple sugar or honey. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just basically mixing whatever you want. We actually made one with pine needles. We just did pine needles oh. and honey and we let them ferment. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's so, so good. And so I guess, you know, if I was going to say uh, something, Ooh, one that, that, you know, is starting to happen. I don't know if you're spruce, do you guys get the tip, spruce tips in the spring down there or is it just, mm, well, not in my neighborhood. We don't really have, no, I don't think so, but I know, I know, I know what you're talking about. That was spruce tips. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we love those. But um, pine needles are totally fine. Mm -hmm. um, you just get a jar, you fill them, you know, about three quarters of the way packed with pine needles. And These you are fresh pine green, over. fresh yep. green needles. Yeah, okay. Fresh green, clean pine needles. And you pour honey over the top, uh, you know, use a lid or a fermentation lid um, uh, or use a lid that's not quite screwed on too tight and just mm -hmm. let it go. Stick it in a, you know, Stick it in a, a cool, dry place, and it will um, uh, it will ferment in just a few weeks. You can actually use that honey as a wonderful cough medicine, or you could use it to make tea. You could use that uh, in various recipes. Um, if you wanted to do a, 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 another chung that's like more watery, the most um, the most probably traditional chung is what's called a Maishal, Maishal chung, and that mm -hmm. is green wild plums and oh. sugar. Um, and, and we've used maple sugar, uh, but we've also used organic raw cane sugar uh, mm -hmm. as well. And you basically just get a jar and you fill it full of these green plums and you just pack every bit of the rest of it with sugar. And it will just sort of, the, you know, it'll ferment, the sugar will melt, and you have this mm -hmm. gorgeous like golden liquid of the gods. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. That's a great ad. Gorgeous golden liquid of the gods from, from really unripe plums. Wow. 
And so when you when you do the pine needle one, do you cover? I mean, do they are they? Is this just like drizzling a little bit of honey, or do you completely cover them in honey? Like, is completely it completely cover? You okay. want to make sure that no, okay. no, yeah. nothing's exposed to the air. It has to be under under the liquid. Exactly. Oh, that sounds good. Okay, I think I have a new project to do with my try with my kids because I I love. Although I have a whole like fridge where I have all kinds of fermented things that I try. <laughs> That I make, and they're like, it smells so bad. I'm like, no, it's good. It's the microbes are good for you. My my kids are, you know, uh, they all love all of these fermented things, but they like the end result. That whole like, you know, smelly mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, they, they've gotten more used to it in their more lives. They're like, yeah. Sometimes, um, okay, enough is enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm really excited too. Um, at the meeting, we're going to have uh, Sandor Katz and Julia Skinner are going to be there. And I definitely need to hit Sandor up for some more of his uh, sourdough um, starter because I like let mine die. <laughs> that I got from him before. So I'm like, I've felt so guilty ever since then. I'm like, I, it's like my garden. Like, I can't just leave it alone for like, you know, too long. So I'm going to be a better sourdough mama. <laughs> When I get this batch. <laughs> it, it really is like having a pet. My husband was terrified because I got him as a gift. One of our <laughs> friends um, from Spring Hill Heritage Farm uh, gave us some sourdough starters and, and yeah. gave it to him. And I thought it was a gift. But like five days later, he was all like scratched. You know, he hadn't showered black rings under his eyes and he's like it's like five times the size that it was i've been feeding it every day it's gonna die just calm down i told him to put it in the fridge to slow it down a little Uh, yeah yeah yeah. well i think i think this is all good for for listeners to hear because you see these beautiful books with these gorgeous recipes and it's like oh they just get it perfect every time no the reality is we mess up (laughs) and like and and sometimes we make delicious things sometimes it just goes wrong so it's it's all about like the journey and and enjoying you know when you do have something beautiful like the nectar of the gods to have at the end that's that's always a win (laughs) you know uh i i made um a few batches of fermented hot sauce last year and like one of them molded I, I just couldn't oh, no. even understand, like, you know, and, and it was just one of them. I used the same peppers, the same ratio, mm-hmm. the same, you know, same chili, same ratio of salt, brine, yeah. you know, all, all of that. Everything was exactly the same. There must have been something on one of the chilies. I don't know. But one of them yeah. rolled it and threw it away. So it, it still happens to all of us. Yeah. Just, and you know what to look for. I mean, that's that's the key. It's like, you know, yeah. when it's when there's something on. I want to ask Sandra yeah. Katz if if they still mess up stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, I mean, I've taken one of his workshops before and I'm pretty sure he, yeah, he told us about the things to look out for. And I think he learned it through experience. So yeah. So I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's like reading the language of nature. Like, you know, like, okay, this is a good sign. This is, you know, this is yeah. when uh, you need to toss it. Um, but there's always ways to start over again. And it's like playing with microbes, playing with plants. I mean, that's kind of my jam. So as I also, and I know it's your jam. So we're like, we love fermenting things. Um, well, okay. I have, I want to get to some other questions before we run out of time. And, um, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but I want to just tell us a little bit more about the Makochi Ikik Chupi and your work there. And, and please, you know, 
maybe you can pronounce it again correctly so he's i got it wrong really that was like that was it's makoche ikikupi which in in, uh, lakota and dakota it actually means land recovery and it's this amazing organization my husband and i sit on the board um Mm -hmm. they're based in minnesota um but it's an ocheti shakoi um uh organization and um, basically what they do is they get donations from settler allies and, you know, uh, uh, churches, things like that, all, all sorts of organizations who donate money. Uh, n- they don't take money from indigenous people or groups, just from settlers and settler allies who, and, um, who, who donate, you know, funds uh, as part of reparations. Mm-hmm. And then Makoche Ikichupi takes those funds and buys land back. And puts it back in the hand of indi- hands of indigenous people. Specifically, wow. um, puts it back sort of into this almost commune type um, model, and then they build earth lodges on it, like traditional Dakota style earth lodges. Um, wow. If any of you don't know what an earth lodge looks like, it's um, it's a structure that has a wood frame. It's round. Uh, but then it's just covered with dirt. So if you see it from afar, you just think it's this weird little hill. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a traditional structure in which people have lived for thousands and thousands of years. And um, yeah, they're absolutely amazing. So they build these homes and then any member of the Ocheti Shakoi who wants to live in a more traditional way can move in. So we already have a village site uh, in Minnesota, more Northern Minnesota, um, but now we've recently acquired an organic farm um, and we're gonna build earth lodge on there. It's in Southern Minnesota. Um, My husband and I have been helping to sort of steward that land and um, there's like this gorgeous four season greenhouse. I want you to see it. Oh, wow. Yeah, And, and you know, I can't tell you on the Northern prairies, what in an unbelievable gift it is to be able to start growing food in January. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's unheard of. Um, but, but this greenhouse, you know, we can, uh, the, the elderly couple who had it before us and who, who helped us to acquire it, um, they, uh, they had a four season CSA, so they were growing food all over the place. Wow. But yeah, I really want, I wanted to to mention Makoche Ikikjupi in case any of your listeners were looking for an amazing organization to support who was doing good things. So thanks for letting me mention that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, tell us where, where can folks go to learn more about it or are there, there are sites where they can make donations or like, where can we send them? Yep. There's a donation link on the website and it's um, www makocheikikchupi.com and I you know maybe we could put it in the comments or somewhere yeah I'll add it to the show notes for sure that'll be that'll be great okay we'll we'll make sure that ends up in the show notes so folks you can find that on our website at foodiepharmacology.com it'll be there along with the episode details that's great Thank you. Well, yeah, I don't you want to know how to spell in Dakota. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like it's it's going to be a, <laughs> a long one, I'm sure. Um, well, I know one of the other things I so admire about your work, Linda, is not only your passion for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and experiences with your students, but it's also your 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 willingness to share it with a larger population. And I was wondering, can you tell us, like, for listeners out there that would like to learn more about your work in food sovereignty? Um, where they can go to follow you? Are you on social media channels? What, where, where can they find you? 
Oh yeah, thanks for saying that. So um, I am, I'm on Facebook way more than I should be. I'm on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> um, at lynda.black.elk and I'm also on TikTok at the same. Uh, you know, my seven-year-old son and I make TikTok videos and put them on there to talk about plants. We um, I, we just figure, you know, none, none of my knowledge is mine. None of it. None of it belongs to me. It was all gifted to me. People taught me. And so um, I think it's so important that I have the obligation then to pass it on and share it as well. Um, and so that's what I try to do. It's hard to stay positive on social media these days, but <laughs> yeah, I try really hard. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's, there, there are so many challenges in the world, but, you know, it's initiatives that are led by people that are passionate about conserving culture and landscapes and connecting people back to nature and to food. I mean, that's what gives me hope and inspiration. So, um, and you're one of those people that gives me hope and inspiration. So thank you for that. You are for me too. I love you. So thanks so oh. much. For <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show, Linda. All right, guys. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the Foodie Pharmacology audience. Um, I want to give a big shout out of thanks also to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And I want to thank you, listeners. We're now in season five and we're getting really close to that 100,000 download mark. So I know that Linda's and all of our other episodes coming out this season are going to help us get there. Um, but you can also help us by raising awareness about the podcast. You can do that simply by heading over to our show on Apple podcast and clicking that five star mark. I'd appreciate five stars. That'd be great. I mean, four is good too, but five I'd really like. <laughs> and if you enjoy the show, you know, adding a little comment there is also a big help. Um, if you want to support the show, you can also buy me a coffee. You can head over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodiepharma. There are production costs associated with the show, so every little bit helps. And if you want to get some cool merch, including some fun um, coffee cups and bags and all kinds of cool stuff, you can find that at mysterycontrol.com and just look under the Foodie Pharmacology um, drop-down menu. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>